calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 15 God's Chosen Chief Petty Officer Oren Nagy had always dreamed of serving in the Navy. The big ships, seeing the world on Uncle Sam's dime, the service, the career. He had wanted all these things. He hadn't wanted to murder people, though. Until now. Now he wanted to murder a lot of people. Every single person he saw, in fact. The biosafety unit made him sweat. It also bounced his own voice back to him when he talked. Made him sound strange. Latimer! John Jay! He called out, reading from the list on the clipboard as he'd been instructed to do. Cellulose test! Four wounded men were lying on the floor in the corner of the bunk room. They were too wounded to do work, but less wounded than the men who occupied the actual bunks. Second-degree burns covered one man's arm. Another sailor had a red-spotted bandage wrapped around his head, something straight out of a shitty war movie. Orrin wanted to shoot them, stab them, maybe stomp down on their throats and watch them suffocate to death. But for now, he had to keep up appearances. Latimer John Jay, he said again. Which one of you is Latimer John Jay? The one with the head bandage raised his hand. Orrin pulled a cellulose testing kit out of the bag slung over his shoulder, handed it over. Orrin knew he wasn't human anymore but he could still appreciate the irony that he was one of the sailors testing people to see if they were infected. His turn was coming soon enough. He'd managed to dodge his last test when he'd already realized God had chosen him. Orrin had pretended to fall, jabbed the end of his testing stick into a sleeping man. It worked. His test administrator had been distracted, had been counting down names on the list, looking for the next testee. If it had been business as usual aboard the Brashear, the administrator would have been eyes on, carefully watching the results. But it wasn't business as usual. God had seen to it to place hundreds of extra men on board, many severely wounded, creating confusion, making people lose focus. Still, Oren knew that he probably wouldn't be able to fake his way through the next test. They, the humans, they would find out about him, and they would try to kill him. 
That test was scheduled in two hours. In thirty minutes, his shift in the suit was up. That would give him ninety minutes to touch as many people as he could, to spread the gift that he'd been given. Then, maybe, he could answer that burning, churning need in his chest. He could finally kill. Chapter 16 Testy, Testy The final airlock cycled. Clarence stepped out first, took in a large area hemmed in by the now-familiar white walls. In front of him were two rows of high-ceilinged, ten-by-ten glass cells stretching to the back of the room. A man stood in each of the two closest cells, a black man on the left, a white man on the right, both wearing gray hospital gowns. They were just there to be observed, but that didn't make it any less of a prison. Both men seemed fit and healthy, arms lined with lean muscle. Each cell had a small steel desk, a steel chair beneath it, and a plastic-covered mattress that lay on top of a stainless steel bed. A tablet computer sat on each desk, the diver's entertainment and reading material, perhaps. Other than that, there was nothing, save for a steel toilet that looked to be a raised hole without plumbing. In a third cell, behind that of the white man, Clarence saw an Asian man lying motionless on the bed. Medical equipment surrounded him, a technological monster clutching at him with wires and sensors, looking inside him through tubes up his nose and IVs in his arms. Through their clear cell walls, the two standing men watched Clarence, Margaret, and Tim. The men looked afraid. They watched. They waited. To Clarence's right, past the line of glass cages, was an open space ringed with gleaming steel tables, clamps, saws, robotic arms, various equipment to prepare material brought up from the lake bottom, he assumed. The reason for the prep area was clear, to receive material from yet another airlock. This one, the biggest he had ever seen. It was the width of a two-car garage. Nozzles and vents lined the ceiling. Everything in this room here could be sprayed down, disinfected in a rainstorm of bleach. Margaret walked to the aisle that ran between the two rows of cells. The cell doors opened onto that aisle, if they would ever be opened, that was. Clarence knew those men might very well die in those cells. A flat panel monitor was mounted at the left side of each cell door. On those monitors, Clarence saw the familiar spikes of an EKG, various other numbers revealing the physical state of the men inside. How much did these men know? Did they truly understand why they were being held? They look okay, Clarence said. They do, Tim said. They are tested every three hours, all negative so far. The rest of the ship is tested every six hours, including me, and now both of you. He pointed to the cell with the prone man. That fellow, on the other hand, is unfortunately brain-dead. Ensign Eric Edmund. Couldn't exactly call him okay. Margaret stepped into the aisle between cells. Was Edmund also a diver? No. Injured in the battle. He's a gift from Captain Yasaka, in case I need a living subject for my yeast experimentation. Clarence felt his anger flare up. He spun to face Tim. Experiment? Brain dead or not, that's a serviceman in there, not a gift. Tim didn't bother to hide a look of contempt. Agent Otto, Ensign Edmund isn't coming back. If he wasn't in that cell, he'd have already been put in the incinerator along with the other dead bodies. 
Machines are the only thing keeping him alive. Alive for your research, which you already told us was a failure. Tim rolled his eyes. How about you use that oversized melon of yours for something other than a hat rack? We have no idea what we'll need. If we have to experiment, it's Edmund or some other sailor, maybe one who's not brain dead. What's the matter, Feely? Don't have the balls to experiment on yourself. Feely shrugged. I didn't enlist, big fella. If you're dumb enough to sign your life over to Uncle Sam, then Uncle Sam gets to decide what happens to you. Clarence moved closer, stared down at the smaller man. I was dumb enough to enlist, you asshole. He'd assumed his size would intimidate Feely, that his position with the DST might make Tim rethink his opinion of servicemen. But Tim just smiled an arrogant smile. You were a soldier? And here I was thinking you had a particle physics degree in your pants. Maybe you're just glad to see me. Enough, Margaret said her words loud enough to rattle the speakers in Clarence's helmet. He turned, looked at her, and felt instantly foolish. This was no time to let someone like Feely get a rise out of him. Margaret glared at them both. If you two want to have a pissing contest, save it for later. Dr. Feely, if it weren't for Agent Otto, you wouldn't be here. I didn't save the world all by myself, you know. Give him the respect he deserves. Clarence had a brief moment to feel justified, to feel that Margaret was backing him up, before she turned her anger on him. And you, Clarence, wake up! Before this is over, we might have to do far worse things than experiment on a man who's already gone. Now, if the two of you are done posturing, can we get to work? Clarence's anger shifted instantly into embarrassment. He nodded. Sorry, Tim said. From now on, I'll be sugar and spice and everything nice. Feely was still being a smartass, but Clarence thought he heard a hint of sincerity in there. Margaret reached out, tapped at the left-hand cell's panel. They've been in here for... She tapped again. Thirty-eight hours. Correct, Tim said. Your notes described an incubation period of between 24 and 48 hours before infected victims start to show symptoms. So, if we're lucky, these men are in there another two days, just to be sure. The black diver spoke. I find your definition of luck somewhat wanting, Dr. Feely. The white diver rested his forehead against the inside of his cell wall. Oh, man, two more days. Tim walked back to the airlock door and opened a cabinet mounted just to its left. He pulled out two cellulose test boxes, then returned to the black diver's cell. Master Diver Kevin Cantrell, meet Dr. Montoya and Agent Otto, Tim said. How about you show them our fun little drama called It Puts the Lotion in the Basket? Tim placed the box in a small, rotating airlock mounted in the clear door, then moved his hands in midair. It took Clarence a second to remember Tim was using his suit's HUD to control things. The airlock turned. Cantrell opened the white box, pulled out the foil envelope inside. He stared at it like it was a living thing, something pretending to be still until it was ready to bite. Your title is wrong, Cantrell said. I prefer the Merchant of Venice. Venice, Tim said. What's that got to do with anything? Margaret answered. It's Shakespeare. If you prick us, do we not bleed? 
Kentrell glanced at her, then at the testing unit, then looked at her again, stared hard. Lady, are you... are you here to kill me? A direct question, but it didn't make sense. Clarence noticed a slight gleam on Cantrell's forehead. He was perspiring a little. Did he have a fever? Margaret answered in a calm, measured voice. Mr. Cantrell, why do you think I want to kill you? Clarence understood. She thought Cantrell might be showing signs of paranoia, one of the main symptoms of infection. Cantrell blinked rapidly, sniffed. He forced a smile, gestured to the walls around him. I'm a guinea pig, ma'am. It's a logical question. Before Margaret could ask another question, Cantrell removed the white plastic tube, pressed it against the tip of his right pointer finger. The yellow light started flashing immediately. Clarence watched, tension pulling his body forward, making his hand itch to draw his weapon, a weapon he didn't have. He felt naked. He needed to get a rig that would let him wear a holster over the suit. Was Cantrell's light about to turn red? Was a piece of thick glass all that separated Margaret from one of the infected? The flashing yellow slowed, then stopped and blinked out. The green light turned on. Clarence's body relaxed slightly, a tight spring uncoiling halfway. Maybe these guys still had a chance. Cantrell carried his test, box and envelope and all, to his toilet. He tossed everything down the open hole. Clarence heard a soft whoomp, an incinerator flaring to life. The other diver slapped on the glass of his cell, making Margaret jump. Ma'am, you've got to get me out of here, he said to her. We're fine. The tests keep coming up negative. We're fine. It took Tim only two steps to cross the aisle. He put the other box in the airlock, rotated it through. And this fine gentleman is Diego Clark. Tim said. Clark, how about you quit with the whining and make with the pricking? Clark looked at the test box like it was poisonous. He then looked up at the cluster of nozzles mounted in his cell's high ceiling. Some of the nozzles were stainless steel. Others were brass. The brass nozzles reminded Clarence of something, but he couldn't place what. The stainless steel ones he recognized, as he'd seen them in the Margot mobile. They were for knockout gas, in case Tim and Margaret had to go in and work on a dangerous infection victim. Clark slapped the glass again. Let me out! We're just doing our jobs. We shouldn't be locked up. This is horse shit. Where's my CO? Where's my lawyer? Less talky-talky, Tim said. More testy-testy. Clark opened the box and removed the foil envelope, then threw the box down and stomped on it. When I get out of here, Feely, he said, I'm going to shove one of these straight up your ass. As long as you buy me dinner first. Tim said. Now do the damn test! Clark again looked up to the ceiling, then shook his head. Ain't gonna burn me, he said. Burn. That triggered Clarence's memory. He again looked up at the cell ceiling and understood why the brass nozzle seemed familiar. It looked like a flamethrower. Clark was right to be afraid. His cage could be instantly turned into a fire-filled oven that would burn him alive. Tim sighed, clearly bored with the drama. He slowly raised a finger toward the flat panel controls of Clark's cell. You're getting tested, Tim said. 
You can either be conscious for it, or I can knock you out and give it to you myself. Your choice. Clark instantly shook his head. Whatever Tim used as knockout gas, it clearly had unpleasant side effects. Clark tore the foil envelope open, took the time to use the alcohol swab, which Cantrell hadn't bothered with, Clarence realized, then stabbed the end into his finger. The yellow light flashed faster, then slowed, then stopped. The red light came on. No one said a word. Clarence stared, stunned into thoughtlessness. The man had looked fine. Cantrell broke the silence. If you poison us, he said quietly, do we not die? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Clark raised the testing kit to eye level, his wide stare locked on the steady red light. Margaret shook her head. No, she said. No, we won. Tim finally reacted. He moved his hands in front of his face, accessing something on his HUD. Clark, Diego L. tested positive for cellulose, he said, administering anesthesia. He tapped the empty air. Something up above beeped. Clark looked up, eyes wide, body shaking. Don't light me up, man. Don't light. He sagged to the floor. He didn't move. Chapter 17 Running Drugs Hey, Hefe Cooper. Jose spoke quietly, but Cooper heard the words loud and clear. He tried to ignore them. He was sleeping, after all. Hey, Hefe Cooper. Cooper lifted his head, opened his eyes. Smiling Jose was kneeling next to the bed. He was close, almost leaning over Cooper, but the tiny half-stateroom didn't leave much of an option. It was already too cramped for just one person, let alone a second. Jose offered a steaming cup of coffee. Ah, you're awake, he said, as if it was a lucky coincidence. I am now, Cooper said. And I don't want to be. I haven't slept all night, man. Is everything okay? Jose shrugged. Probably, but... Can I show you something? Cooper flopped his face back into the pillow. Doesn't involve me getting up. Jose laughed, but it seemed forced. 
<laughs> Why, is there something of mine you want to see while you're lying in bed? Mm, good point. Aren't you supposed to be on the bridge? I am, Jose said. But I think this is really important. Cooper sat up quickly. Is Jeff? His voice trailed off. He was about to ask if Jeff had the helm, but the loud snoring from the other side of a thin wall told him Jeff was out cold. When they'd bought the Mary Ellen, Jeff had built a wall dividing the 10 by 10 captain's stateroom into two equal 5 by 10 rooms. He'd put in another door, even installed a second sink so they would each have one. Partners, 50-50 all the way, as they'd been since childhood. While it gave Cooper the luxury of a small amount of privacy, it also meant he heard everything that went on in Jeff's stateroom. What Jeff did more than anything else in there was snore, loudly. Cooper took the cup of coffee. You left the bridge unattended. This better be fucking important, dude. Jose nodded quickly, placatingly. Yes, Efe Cooper, I know. Maybe it's nothing. Come up to the bridge, okay? And and don't wake up Hefe Jeff yet, okay? Why? Jose shrugged. I need the money from this job. If I don't get it, my family will get kicked out of our house. That meant the problem had something to do with Stanton. Jeff seemed one more incident away from insisting on turning back, killing the contract, and dumping Stanton and Bo Pan back on shore. Jose needed the money. So did Cooper. So did Jeff. Okay, Cooper said. But you do know how ridiculous Hefe Jeff sounds, right? Jose smiled, shrugged. He slid out of the stateroom and into the corridor. Cooper took a sip of the coffee, set the mug on his half-desk. He stood, slid his feet into his shoes. He was already dressed. In bad weather, you had to be ready to move quick. He left the stateroom, stopped in front of his best friend's door. It felt wrong to not wake Jeff up, involve him in this, but Jeff just wasn't thinking clearly. Cooper would handle it. If it turned out to be anything important, he'd wake Jeff right away. Cooper headed up. Jose was waiting for him on the Mary Ellen's small bridge. Cooper stepped inside, shut the door behind him. The bridge had only a little more room than his stateroom. On the Mary Ellen, everything was nice and cozy. Okay, what's this about? Hefe Stanton's robot ship, Jose said. Something you need to see from when it launched. He turned to the sonar unit and started to call up a recording. You woke me up to show me a sonar of the customer's ROV? UUV, Jose corrected. Right, UUV, whatever. Jose finished loading the recording. He played it. Cooper leaned in to look at the sonar readout. And as he did, he grew angry. The platypus was ten feet long, not quite two feet wide at its widest point. A long, thick eel of a machine, with flippers at the end and the sides. It was artificial, metal and carbon fiber, materials that bounced back sonar loud and strong. The image on the sonar recording didn't look artificial at all. God damn it, Jose, that's a sonar signature from a fucking fish. This is what I get for letting an illegal Filipino play with expensive equipment. Putang inamo, Jose said. What's that mean? It means you have pretty eyes, Hefe Cooper. I'm quite certain that's not what it means. Just because you don't know how to work the equipment doesn't mean you can insult me. 
And calling me an illegal isn't an insult. I'm an undocumented worker. Jose paused the playback. His finger reached out, rested below the screen's time readout. Cooper saw it, made the connection. The recording was from the time of that morning's launch. Cooper leaned in. What the hell? This is when the platypus was right next to the boat. Watch as it starts to move away. He hit play. The sonar signal faded, then vanished. Cooper looked at the time readout. Only ten seconds had passed. That can't be right, he said. Ten seconds after it started moving, it wasn't even thirty feet away from us. At a distance of thirty feet, something artificial the size of the platypus should have been a bright white signal. Jose paused the playback. He looked at Cooper. For once, the man wasn't smiling. That's not just expensive equipment, Jefe Cooper. That's stealth. Military grade, maybe. Is Stanton running drugs or something? What if the Coast Guard comes out here? Cooper finally understood Jose's concern. Steve Stanton is not running drugs, Cooper said. We won't get busted by the Coasties. You won't get deported. You're fine. Jose looked at the paused recording. He hit play and again let it run. It showed nothing. He looked up at Cooper again. On no gang war? No one will shoot at us? No gang war. We're safe, I promise, just... Cooper couldn't help looking at the screen again, noting that the time stamp was 30 seconds into the platypus launch. The thing should have still been kicking back sonar like mad. You were right to tell only me. Jeff will just get all fired up and it's nothing. Between us, right? Jose nodded, raised his hands in a gesture that said, You told me what I needed to hear. Okay, Jefe Cooper. Sorry to wake you up. He stood and walked to the door. No problem. You go on, get some sleep. I've got the helm. Jose left. Cooper sat, feeling mixed emotions. Stealth. Military grade. If Jeff found out... Cooper shook his head. Jeff wouldn't find out. So the customer had expensive equipment. Crazy expensive. So what? That wasn't Cooper's business. And it wasn't Jeff's business either. They were getting paid like kings to facilitate Steve Stanton's search for the Flying Dutchman of the Great Lakes. Jeff's instincts and decisions had almost put the business under. It was Cooper's turn to call the shots. A few more days, a week at the most, and this would be over. Chapter 18 The Bodies Margo, Clarence said. You okay? Margaret heard his voice through the speakers in her wide helmet, but also from outside the suit. Clarence was right behind her, in a BSL-4 rig of his own. She'd tuned out, got lost in her memories. Amos, Dew, Betty Jewell, Chelsea, Perry. The mind-ripping horror of it all. No, she wasn't okay. Not even close. I'm fine, she said. Just give me a minute. She hadn't been on the Carl Brashear for more than a few hours, and there was already one person infected. The divers had done something wrong, 
expose themselves somehow. Margaret was already far behind in the race. To center herself, she took a long look at the trailer Tim called the Hurt Locker. The place had been designed with volume in mind. Ten metal tables were lined up in parallel, running down the trailer's length. Each table had its own rack of analysis equipment. Maybe the engineers assumed the Carl Brashear would have a full complement of scientists when the shit hit the fan. She reached up, checked the hose connected to her helmet. Secure, no problems. When moving from trailer to trailer, the suits used internal air supplies. For working in one area, however, ceiling-mounted hoses provided breathable air. Two of the metal tables held corpses of Candace Walker and Charlie Petrovsky. Tim was already working on Petrovsky, taking samples from all over his body. Margaret couldn't put it off any longer. She had to get to work, figure out what had happened. One of those bodies, or both, had infected Diego Clark. Clarence, I need you to talk to Cantrell, she said. Clark's diving gear was BSL-4 rated. We have to figure out how he got infected. I can do that, Clarence said. I've read his report. Seems like everything was solid. She'd also read the report. Hadn't seen any mistakes. Maybe he missed something. Maybe the suits malfunctioned somehow. Maybe. I'll find out. Do you need anything before I go talk to him? She shook her head. From her helmet speakers, she could hear him breathing. He was there with her, like he always was, like he had been since he'd been assigned to her when all of this began nearly six years earlier. What would life be like without him? And how had she managed to let a man like him slip away? Margaret had to get her head in the game. She couldn't rely on Clarence to be her crutch anymore. I'm fine. Just go, Clarence. Talk to Kentrell. She walked toward the bodies. Candace Walker had suffered horribly, but Charlie Petrovsky had it even worse. His entrails were mostly missing as was his left hip and the leg that would have been attached to it. His left arm looked fine, but his right was a ribbon of flesh made bumpy by the broken bits of bone beneath. The rapid decomposition had started in, giving his skin a gray pallor. Large black spots dotted his torn flesh. Smaller black spots peppered his body. Tim was right. Within the next 24 hours, that unstoppable chain reaction would turn Petrovsky into a pitted skeleton, and a puddle of black slime streaked with gossamer threads of green mold. Candace Walker's naked body had yet to show the black rot. She had died later than Petrovsky, obviously, but her rapid decomposition would soon start to show. Margaret noticed some small pustules on Walker's left thigh, right breast, and right shoulder. Margaret had seen similar pustules on Carmen Sanchez, the Detroit police officer whom she had studied as the infection raged through his body. The pustules were likely full of crawlers, modified so they could be carried away on the wind when the skin broke open. If the crawlers landed on a host, they would burrow under the skin and start modifying stem cells to produce more of their kind. Stripped of her uniform, Walker looked barely out of her teens. She could have been a giggly college freshman killed in a spring-break drunk driving accident. Could have been, except for the sawed-off arm. Margaret closed her eyes as a memory flared up. Powerful and hot and so real it felt like it had happened only moments earlier. Amos, his gloved hands grabbing at his throat, but unable to reach it because of the Tyvek suit. Blood trickling from a hole in that suit, 
and also jetting against the inside of his visor, pulsing from a severed artery. Amos falling as Betty Jewell rose up from her examination table, pulling at the cuff that kept her there until her skin sloughed off and her bloody hand slid free. Dr. Montoya? Tim said. You okay? Margaret opened her eyes. Tim was looking at her, a scalpel in one gloved hand, a petri dish in the other. Sorry. I'm fine. And I'm a 6'5 power forward for the Knicks. Call me Baron Dunkolition. Margaret stared at the man for a moment, then laughed. As far as laughs went, it was a small, pathetic thing. Half a laugh, really. But it was a sound she hadn't made in years. <laughs> You're a funny guy, Baron. You told me you collected live crawlers? Correctamundo, Tim said. From Walker. I didn't have much time when the bodies were brought in here. They were too many wounded that needed my help. But I isolated 50 crawlers from her, four of which are still alive. Margaret was impressed. In a crisis situation, with sailors dying up above, Tim had done what was needed with the dead before he tended to the living. Maybe he did say inappropriate things, but in crunch time this man seemed to excel. Let's do Petrovsky first. We'll start with the brain. Sounds good. I'll get the striker. Let's crack some skulls. Chapter 19 Awakening Motion Vibrations from a bone saw The regular probing of fingers and hands These things resonated through the body These vibrations, these movements Triggered an ingrained automatic response Inside the cyst in case neutrophils They turned on They secreted a new chemical One that dissolved the shells Protecting them against the forces of decomposition Newly exposed to the apoptosis chemicals, the neutrophils didn't have much time. Some of them didn't make it. Caught in blobs of caustic rot, they died almost immediately. Others pushed up, pushed out, crawling through Charlie's muscle, through his subcutaneous layer, through his dermis, then his epidermis, and finally gathered just beneath the squamous epithelium, the skin's outermost layer. There they would wait, Wait until they felt the pressure of another surface coming into contact. When that happened, the neutrophils would cling to that new surface. Then they would simply follow their programming and do what they were made to do. You have been listening to Pandemic. Book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.